to the Restart Radio Show, a very different show about gadgets on Resonance 104.4 FM. This is a different show because unlike most, we're not going to focus on all those shiny, shiny things for you to buy. Instead, we focus in on the value and the stuff we already have. The Restart Project aims for a shift of behavior towards a more sustainable and a happier relationship with electronics. Our monthly community electronics repair events here in London, called Restart Parties, are just the beginning. My name is Janet Gunter, and I'm joined by Ugo Volauri. Hi. And we're co-founders of the Restart Project. And today we're joined by a special guest, uh, researcher Alex Nanapragasam, who is a research fellow in sustainable consumer behavior at Nottingham Trent University. Hi, Alex. Hi, everyone. Hi. <laughs> Hi. Um, Alex, you study our expectations as consumers in relation to product lifetimes and how this affects what we actually do. Um, and just to say, this is our first uh, telephone interview on air. And it's good to know that line phones are still as reliable as radio, right, Ugo? Oh, so much more reliable <laughs> than any of the online systems that replace them, theoretically. <laughs> okay, so Ugo's going to take it away. Interview. Alex, thanks for joining us for the show. No problem. So uh, tell us a bit more about what you're working on. Okay, so presently, um, my brief, as you said, is consumer behavior. And specifically, I'm really interested in what people think are desirable and actual lifetimes for their products. And when I mean, when I'm talking about products, in my research at least, I'm talking about everything from furniture, clothing, fixtures and fittings to white goods, laptops computers, mobile phones and tablets, which I guess is what we're really interested in today. Um, later in my research, so not now, but a bit later on over the next year or so, um, because I'm actually, I'm really interested in um, social justice issues myself. So we're going to revisit some of the work done um, by Professor Tim Cooper, who's also at Nottingham Trent, to look at what sort of longer lasting products, longer lasting gadgets, what these will actually mean for consumers who are less able to afford them. But yeah, presently I'm I'm very interested in our actual sort of what um, what's, what can, what consumers what people feel is desirable and then what their experiences of product lifetimes are. Um, we actually met you via Pro- Professor Tim Cooper, um, yeah. and it was through actually. Th- uh, don't choke on your lunches, listeners, through the Daily Mail. <laughs> um, the a reporter got in touch and they wanted to know, you know, who was the go-to expert on product lifetimes. And the resulting article was really amazing. Um, uh, well, it had a bit of clickbait with the Queen Mum. <laughs> but the title was called Here's Proof Today's Gadgets Are Really Designed to Go Wrong. And it very much touched a nerve. It got over a thousand comments, um, which I'm pretty sure even for the Daily Mail is pretty high. <laughs> um, do you think that that people that people think that things are designed to go wrong? I mean, is this is this are they touching on a real nerve here when they when they made that headline? I think yeah, I really think that there's that perception, isn't there, that products don't last as long as they used to last. Um, I mean, one of the sort of, I guess, caveats and things that I think about there is um, a lot of the products, we're, well, you, we've got different types of products. So um, people talk about mobile phones and mobile phones not lasting long. But I mean, the Queen, Queen Mother's Fridge, freezers, things like that, people also complain about these sorts of products not lasting long. I mean... As sort of my my research focus, I'm very interested in what people's perspectives are on these products. And so I tend to try every opportunity I get when I'm in shops, talk to people about products. And people 
tend to have this feeling that things don't last as long as they used to. Um, and when they're, when they're talking about things like that, it's sort of, they're talking about, uh, they do talk about mobile phones, but one of the real sort of points that um, that's found interesting that a lot of recent research looking at people's understandings of product lifetimes, what their sort of past experiences are, um, really is sort of homed in on their, like um, categories such as white goods, fridges, freezers, things like that. Um, but also gadgets like posters, blenders, things like that. So, um, yeah, there's, there's, there is, seems to be sort of a prevailing concern if you talk to people, members of the public, people in the streets, that things really don't last as long as they used to. And do you think that, in a sense, our perceptions are um, misled by always referring to mobile phones? Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, and I guess I'll provide you guys with the links for some of the reports I want to talk about today. But um, mobile, there was some work done sort of 2010, around that time, um, that was commissioned on behalf of Sephra. They looked at um, people's attitudes to different types of products. And um, the work grouped products into three categories. And they talk about up-to-date products, workhorse products, and premium products. And things like mobile phones, these small sort of appliances, gadgets, things like that, these, these are sort of classed as up-to-date products. They're things that people... Although they say they want to, people express their interest in them lasting longer, they also want all the latest features. Um, whereas things like your fridge, your freezer, they're sort of, um, and one of my colleagues actually really usefully described them as sort of hidden products in a sense, in that these are products that I guess aren't seen, and well, on the whole aren't seen, and that people aren't, aren't so interested in how they look or particular features because they've got a particular job to do. Um, and so these products in particularly... Um, they, they tend to, we buy them with the intention to last longer, whereas things like mobile phones, although we say we want them, on the past, people have said they want them to last longer, um, that they also want the new features. So there is that tension there. Um, and I guess, although people express interest in having longer lasting products, um, research over the last five, six years has shown really sort of begun to unpick the complexity of that issue in that Although we say things, we, we want things to last longer, we have all these other concerns and things that we want, we basically, well, people want a good deal, people want to have money to spend on other things, um, people want things that look good, people want to have the latest features. So, I mean, there's a, there's a real complexity there about uh, product lifetimes, really, because although if we're coming at this from, a, I guess, an environmental perspective, that we want... We want to make sort of the best use of materials and we want to use resources efficiently. Um, sometimes that doesn't really enter into someone's everyday decision-making process with regards to products. Yeah, I was going to ask, um, you know, what do, do you ask people literally about product lifetimes or is that kind of an obscure phrase? I mean, how do you actually literally talk about the topic with people yeah. in stores? So that's actually something that's really interesting. We're currently formulating our, our work, sort of, we're formulating a very large-scale survey to try and get a sort of a state of the, of the UK um, understanding, consumer understanding of product lifetime. And within that, we're having to look at how we phrase our questions. Um, and I hope this doesn't get too dry and boring and academic for some people. Um, but there's many ways we can understand product lifetime. So from my research perspective, and for someone that's looking at consumer behaviour, I'm most interested in the amount of time a person actively uses the product for, and that's called product use time. 
and that's the time they use it, not the time that it sits in the back of a closet or the back of a wardrobe or in their storage room, the time they actively use it. Because I guess when that product's not being used, I mean, it's kind of, I guess, sort of, I don't know, I feel like it's a wasted opportunity. Yeah, I mean, according to us, um, that's a wasted resource. Um, and we're, we're always, in, we get people bringing stuff to our events that have been sitting on closets for years and years. And a lot of times people don't know, they, in a sense, they, they don't mind keeping something. Um, and they don't really necessarily think about that thing sitting on their shelf as a wasted resource. Yeah, and, and actually at times it turns out that the value of that product uh, has been reduced by the fact that it's been sitting in a drawer. Uh, Alex? So, uh, okay. Yeah, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> Go ahead. No, yeah. it's just interesting to hear. So you're, you're concerned with use time, but um, how do people think about the lifetime of a, of, a, of a product? So I guess when we ask people about it, we're, we're particularly interested, I guess, in not just the use time, but the amount of time they, they or in, they in their household or they in their sort of the group of people they live with, or they as part of a community of people that use that particular product, how long that remains with them um, prior. I mean, we're very interested in encouraging people to actively use their product um, and to seek opportunities to repair and uh, fix products because at the end of the day, we're quite interested in... Um, are the research centre we're part of. So we're part of the Centre for Industrial Energy, Materials and Products. We're interested in embodied carbon and we're interested in the fact that these these products that people have in their houses, these products that they either, well, hopefully might be able to use for quite a long period of time and um, sort of prolong the use of these products, these products, that they actually, they don't end up being um, thrown away um, being being unnecessarily broken down, being being left when they could be reused and repaired by other people or repaired for you to use them. So we, we're really interested in, I guess, what sort of um, what sort of initiatives and ideas and um, how we encourage people to um, use their products for longer. And in your work, uh, you've just mentioned embodied carbon, but there's the yeah. concept of embodied energy and virtual water and, and other things that are probably quite obscure for most people yeah. when you approach them. How do you yeah. find people react when you mention these concepts? So I guess embodied carbon, and when we think about it, we think about it in the sense of um, the, the energy and the sort of the energy process that's gone into um, designing the product, sourcing the materials, so that's mining them or extracting them, um, creating the materials themselves, and then the manufacture process, the use process. So we're thinking about the sort of the materials and the energy that are embodied that in that particular product. And that is a really, I mean, I guess that's really intangible. That's a really hard thing for people to understand. And I think one of the other things you mentioned is virtual water. And it's similar because at the end of the day, as a person, in front of me, I have my mobile phone. I, how did I acquire it? I guess I went online and I bought it. But I'm, I mean, I'm very disconnected from the actual process. I mean, I can read about it, but I don't have um, experience of it. And experience is really important to people. Right. I, mean, I, think, um, I think one of the sort of things that we've touched on, we've been chatting about these things before, 
and I think one of the things I've got a feel of um, your material is talking about people's sort of connection um, to their gadgets um, and, to, and to their items. But I guess the interesting thing is how, how do we really understand um, how do we understand that what goes into what goes into getting the product to where it is um, for us? And like you say, it's really intangible because we can't really see that process. And so when talking to people as part of your work, um, do you find people are interested or consider the cost per year when they're buying certain kinds of products or they, they look at the bigger picture of the expected durability and the price or not really? I've, I've not as yet talked to people about myself, about um, the sort of the cost per year and the durability. But if we look at sort of previous research, now the cost per year is a really interesting one because there's a recent study done in the EU um, and they looked at different lifetime labouring strategies. So their idea is that if we can tell people or give people a rough understanding up front of how long a particular product will last for, and so they um, conducted a study which is a simulated shop. So what they do is they get people to take part in a survey where they take purchasing decisions towards buying um, new sorted kettles, suitcases, things like that, vacuum cleaners, washing machines. And they provided them with four different types of lifetime label. And um, one, of the, one of the types was a sort of a cost per year. Another one might be the energy rating you're familiar with. So, um, you know, the sort of a, a a plus plus to right down to F and G, um, and then they also tried to provide people with other things about sort of hours of use and things like that. Um, and they found that on the whole, people basically respond really well to lifetime lifetime labelling, and that it's something that if the information is provided, it can help people take decisions on it. Um, I guess the only problem is that there's a lot of work required, and we need people to research this and help develop these ideas. Yeah, but it's just I was just thinking about, you know, the do you remember there's the labeling for um, food? There's I I think it was quite controversial at first, the the labeling, you know, it was like a red light system for food. So with with is it is it it's sugar and fat, I believe I'm not really well informed, but it's a it's a very visual labeling system. Um, And so there's in a sense, there are precedents exactly like the energy saving system. but as you say, the, the product lifetime is potentially more subjective measure, could we say? Uh, and how, how would how, what would be the role of a regulator in actually? I mean, how, how would we? How could we trust that you know that the average kettle, this average kettle made by this average manufacturer, is actually going to last as long as it says it will? Like, how, how would a, a a regulator actually help the consumer? in creating a real strong system to that effect. It seems kind of complicated. Well, I'm, I think one of the approaches, especially that um, tends to be um, advocated, um, I don't know, I always go back to uh, Professor Cooper's book when he talks about policies for long levity, and looking at sort of um, providing sort of provision for repair, but also guarantees, warranties, in that if we can give um, an upfront sort of um, guarantee for, to the customer that the product should last within um, reasonable use. That's another problem actually we have on handling is how do we know how people are going to use the product? Um, but I guess that's what, so one of the labels that this study talks about is um, putting a, a number of cycles on a washing machine. Um, and then I guess the light, you already have the light, you have sort of a guideline number of hours. 
that um, they should work for. So I guess it would be a combination of um, different policies and initiatives, not just from consumers, um, not just from uh, businesses, but also from government and consumers. There would need to be a very joined up sort of uh, policy climate where people, uh, where businesses and government work with consumers. So I guess you'd have the government would have to uh, play a role in regulation. But equally, businesses would have to play some responsibility. But then there's also a role for a consumer in sort of sensible use and sensible care of the product as well. It's, it's interesting what you say, because it already applies to other categories of products, I think, um, to an extent. I was shopping for a new toolkit uh, bag for Restart to use for our events and uh, ended up settling on one that was providing a 30-year warranty, which doesn't mean that for 30 years any repair will be done for free, obviously, but that reasonable wear and tear uh, between year three and year 30 will be, um, obviously, you will have to pay a little bit, but anything you do to the bag, even abuse to the bag in the first two years, will be treated as their fault, not yours, which is kind of an interesting concept that whatever happens to a device will be taken care of by the manufacturer for a certain period. But then you also know that for the foreseeable future, um, any repair will be done and there's already the cost for each type of repair up front on the website as you're buying the product. It, it seems to me that the first categories of products that we might want to try this with, Alex, are the categories where yeah. people say they want the product to last and they actually reflect that in their behavior. <laughs> yes. <laughs> So, so, so you were saying that initially that sometimes people say they want products to last, but their behavior reflects yeah. something differently. But yeah. if we were to focus to start um, the the pro life sp lifespan labeling, I believe you called it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. With products that where people are already showing those behaviors, yeah. um, that makes sense, doesn't it? I don't yes, think. Would, yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. I don't <laughs> think people really want to buy a new fridge every three, four years, for example. Yeah, they're very happy not to have to think about that anymore. Yeah. And so there you go. Yeah, that, I'd I'd agree with that. I think that's probably that's probably one of the well one of the areas for further research and immediate work. Um, yeah, and I guess what we're hoping is when we when we conducted our large scale survey that we get other insight like that. We find out what exactly the products people are really interested in, because then that gives us somewhere to really target our work and, um, yeah, to sort of hopefully make some positive change in the world with regards to product lifetime. Excellent. Well, let's hope that the Internet of, the Internet of Things does not, uh, does not go and contaminate <laughs> some of these categories that were, used to be, like the toaster, like the refrigerator, that you didn't mind, you, didn't, you weren't bothered to upgrade. Let's hope that we're not going to create thirst for thousands of new updates and new features yeah. and things. <laughs> okay, well, thanks so much, Alex. It's been really great talking to you. And yeah, um, we're going to close out the, episode, the radio show today with a little conversation that might be relevant, but we'll leave it here. Thanks very much. Great. Thank you. Bye. You're listening to Restart Radio on 104.4 FM. And um, today we're talking a little bit about perceptions of product uh, lifetimes. And one of the things I think that really contributes towards those perceptions with electronics, with the kind of the gadgets that we use, are definitely uh, software and firmware. Right, Ugo? 
Absolutely. And uh, we see that day in and day out, people have upgraded the software because it only required a click. And once they do that, they can't go back and they come to see us because their laptop or similar product starts being much slower than it was before. And they think that that's it. They can't really do anything. And this it. comes across the board from tablets, mobiles, laptops. Um, we, we see people desperate with all different kinds of devices and all different, uh, <clears throat> all different s- software. Yeah, and different brands as well. And um, it's, yeah, so it's a problem that's systemic. And unfortunately, with tablets and mobiles, there's not really much that we can do um, often uh, because there aren't alternative software that can be put or there are, they aren't stable enough often. Uh, but with computers, uh, um, particularly laptops and desktop PCs, we, we can do quite a lot for now. <coughs> And one example, actually, we we just had it, we saw it in our own office. Um, years ago, we had received as a donation a wonderful iMac uh, desktop, uh, which was given to us by um, another organization that said that it was too slow for them at that point. And we discovered that it was by far underpowered in terms of the memory, the RAM in the machine. So we did a small upgrade and it started working better for us for a little bit. But then it turns out that um, a software update is now required in order to be able to be on top of all security threats and uh, to make the most of all the new apps. Um, and we realized we couldn't just go ahead and upgrade. But so basically we, we, we're we now with a machine that's nine and a half years old. And uh, it actually I've upgraded it yesterday software-wise after changing the hard drive and adding additional memory. And it's incredibly fast. So you're, we have a computer that's nine years old and it's running the newest uh, Apple operating system, but newest only for a couple of weeks. So one of the big news of the summer is that Apple is, well, I think they do it most most years. So they're planning on rolling out um, some major updates, both for the iOS, for phones, and for um, for computers. Yeah. Um, tell us some of the consequences, Hugo. So the not-so-important consequence is that they're going to stop call it Mac OS X and uh, um, OS X and it's going to be called Mac OS but who cares about that really so the main consequence is that it leaves behind uh, a lot of old machines uh, old uh, as in the one that we just worked on yesterday Um, so that's part of the reason just to say listeners that's why there was some urgency to update we wanted to get the machine with the latest possible operating system before it becomes too late to update Mm. because you never know if it it will still be possible to easily upgrade once they release the next uh, version. It might not be possible or it might be complicated or you might need to buy a DVD, you never know. So we did that and uh, to be fair, uh, Apple will continue support in terms of um, security updates, the um, El Capitan version of their operating system probably for up to two more years but so it's a good time if you have a machine that's not supported by the next one which is to be called Sierra I believe um, if that machine won't be supported by it it's a good time now to get your machine uh, fit for running El Capitan at its best and um, the best thing to do that is if your machine has 
um, upgradable hard drive, which it should, um, is to switch to an SSD drive, which we've spoken a few times about uh, in the show, and it actually makes your machine much, much faster yeah. and to put as much memory as you can. It booted much faster and um, just opening the average uh, suite of programs much faster. Yes, so well. you can install any of your favorite open source or proprietary uh, office suite and it just boots that much in five seconds. It's it's really, really fast. It's much faster than it ever was before, To be, f- which is funny. And we upgraded the RAM as well on that machine. We went yeah. to four gigabyte though it's possible to go to six so i mean for me anyway that is a bit of a revelation in terms of um, perceptions of product lifetimes like that this uh, imac really has in a sense pushed my my view of that um it's a nine-year-old machine it's got a really according to me a nice form factor um and we you know for that reason alone it's just not i mean why would i want to get rid of it um and here it is pretty much like new and I mean, just uh, on the money side of things, uh, it costs us about forty pounds uh, to buy a new drive, um, SSD drive. About fifteen pounds to buy the RAM, which we were able to get secondhand, which is just as good as new. And uh, ten pounds for a case to put the drive in. So in about sixty pounds, we did the full upgrade. And obviously, it takes a few hours of work, but it's totally worth it. These machines are even better than the new ones, to our knowledge, because they still have a DVD drive in them, which the new ones, to become so slim and beautiful, don't have. So, yeah, shop around <laughs> if you're looking for an old uh, but very compelling machine. And what are the implications of the updates for, okay, so for mobiles and tablets in the Apple universe? So part of the implications are that particularly for iPad users, that uh, all iPad 2 and 3 will no longer be supported, which is a significant... Uh, uh, Anyway, I know iPad 2, which is a lot of a huge number of users. It's the 2 and the 3. And the the 3 was a generation that only existed for a few months. It was a strange generation of iPads. But... uh, (laughs) And yeah, so it's but what does up it mean to forty percent of all existing iPads will no longer be directly supported in terms of the new mean? OS. What does that mean? Because we've had people come to us like with the first gener- generation of iPad and say, like they can't they can't use video, they can barely open a browser. <clears throat> what is the experience of the? Well, the for the first one, the first one was kind of an experimental device, in in a sense, fairly underpowered compared to other ones, and um, the second and the third were much more powerful as devices so what it means that it's not supported that the new os is no longer supported is that um, apps will still be running all third-party apps until new features in the apps might require the new os so people can still use the ipad um, in the same way as before but don't be surprised if some apps will require uh uh, iOS update mm. in the future. Okay. You're listening to Restart Radio on Resonance 104.4 FM. Um, Ugo, can you tell us about upcoming events? Yes, we have the last event for July happening this evening in Belsize Community Library. Uh, Belsize Park Tube Station is the closest one between 6 and 9 p.m. Bring your sad electronics or your skills to learn and share repair. 
And you can find out more on our website, therestartproject.org, or find us on Twitter or Facebook. We're taking a break during the month of August to recharge and restart ourselves, but we'll be back live in a couple of weeks. Um, in the meantime, I think you'll get a chance to catch up on some of our um, best episodes um, from the past year. Thanks to OptoNoise and Cassini Sound for our music, which was made with lasers, spinning discs, and discard electronics. We'll see you in a couple of weeks. Happy summer. Thank <laughs> you.